This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our author's name is Stuart Maloney. The book he has written is titled 26, A Behind-the-Scenes Tour of Life with Cerebral Palsy. Thank you, Stuart, for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. And you're not in the United States. You're in the United Kingdom, correct? That is correct, or, yes. In yes. Peterborough, which is that near Cambridge. Tell me a little bit about this book. I understand from your history that you are a an individual that's dealing with cerebral palsy. You've made what was a, a lemon into a lemonade, as it's uh, often described in, in certain conversations. Tell me about your beginnings and how you came to write this book. What motivated you to do so? Well, I have been um, I have been told by several people over the years that I should write a book, and so that I that I started to write one, and that I stopped um, several times. One day it just clicked, and I went to write a book about. My life was terrible pausing how and how it started was that when I was born there was negligence on the part of the doctors that delivered me and that I was actually dead for twenty six minutes when I was born, hence the title of the book. And I thought that writing the book would be a good way to inspire others as well as Help me come to terms with some of the issues that I've faced through my life. From your history, you've also become a coach of type. Uh, tell us about that journey. Okay. Uh, about six years ago, I got into uh, um, a sport called hand cycling, and it's uh, quite a quite a niche sport. Not many people actually were taking part in it. In, in my area and the equipment is, is actually quite expensive as well. So a few of us got together and decided to start a club up and it just went from there. I qualified as a, as a cycling coach and I've now been working with the project for about three or four years and we've, we've really that had some success with various disabilities from Down syndrome to cerebral palsy. And those that you've trained, are they also involved in competition? Uh, we're looking to do that in the near future. However, we base the club on fun and individual goals rather than actual competition. That goal sounds very honorable. The underlying purpose is to get those with any ability to get out and exercise and to use those ability to their utmost. Yes, yes, that's right. A lot of people, especially once you get to 18, there's not a lot of activities for disabled people. So the motivation was to, to put some activities out there and to say you can compete on the on the level playing field, and that's what we did. 
Describe the process of writing your book. How did it come together? It came together the, one day when it was that it was raining outside, and I thought I'll, I'll just I just start writing and see where it goes. And then I, the next thing I knew, I had four par um, four chapters, and so I kept going and kept going. And as I as I kept writing, it seemed to be that that there was something worth pursuing uh, in the story and that other people would get something out of it. So I kept on writing and so I, I uncovered that, um, some sad memories, some happy memories, some funny things that have happened to me and they all blended together into a really good book. And you'd call this a book of inspiration from your perspective? I would, yeah. I've actually had quite a few people say to me that reading the book has changed their life or changed their perspective on on their life. That uh, that comes from both parents of children that have cerebral palsy and people who have cerebral palsy themselves. And that's very rewarding to hear. So if you just change one person's life with, with a condition like myself, I... I think that's a, a great success. In your life, what one incident that you can recount inspired you the most? Uh, I had to do um, an assignment on my childhood, and I had to, when I was at school, and I had to interview my dad. And so I prepared, um, I prepared the questionnaire, and I sat down to ask him the questions. And the first question was, what was, what in my dad's eyes did he think was my best achievement? And I was expecting him to say, first steps or first step school. But he actually said, when I sucked out of the, when I drunk out of the school, and to actually have that, all the grandeur of expectations stripped away and to see, how basic my my parents' wants were for me was inspiring and humbling as well. You've managed to put together over 26 chapters, total of 236 pages. One of your chapters, which caught my attention, is A Dentist Drill Changed My Life, and that's the whole truth. Tell me yeah. about that chapter. Well, so when, when I was 16, that went to... I had to have a tooth out. And so I went to the oral surgery unit at the hospital and it was quite stubborn and the, during the process the doctors ended up going into healthy teeth. When I next saw my dentist, he advised my parents to go see a solicitor because he believed that there was a case for compensation regarding me so the incident was healthy teeth. Which led my parents to go see a solicitor who dismissed that case, but in turn they got talking about that my birth and uh, pursuing a negligence claim against the NHS, which is the National Health Service in, in the UK. 
And that's where the idea to sue the hospital came from. And if it wasn't for the, the doctor that accidentally drilled into that tooth, I wouldn't have pursued the claim. And what was the outcome? The outcome was that I, uh, there was a national court settlement on my, uh, in my favor for a million pounds. Amazing that you were able to sue what, in fact, is the government indirectly of the United Kingdom and get results. That in itself is a miracle. Yes, it is. It was a very hard fight, but we managed to get a good result in the end. How long did it take you to put your book together? It took about a year, a year to write it, a year to edit it, and then a year to get it to publishing. So about three years. And during that process, was there some self-discovery? Oh, there was ma a massive amount of self-discovery. Yes, uh, I found I found out things about myself that I, I didn't realize that was the case. Um, but not least that I realized I could write a book. But I also I remembered things about my past that I didn't quite want to remember, and at times I hated the book for leading me down the the path which. It did, and that led me to some nasty places, but it, it benefited me overall because so I became more self-aware and more at peace with myself through writing this book. Beautiful. And to introduce this to someone, what would be the key words you would use to introduce it? Uh, inspiring, enlightening, funny profound, uplifting. And is there any one particular scene in your life that stands out that you think the reader would be engaged by? As from talking to readers and coming into contact with them, I know that they really relate to the, the chapter about one of my ex-girlfriends, the, the relationship it was very bad, and there was, I was subjected to domestic abuse, and it was found that she was abusing me regarding my disability, but the, why, why it stands out to people is that people can relate to, to being in love and can relate to a bad relationship. So I would say that one is a standout chapter for a lot of people. And are there four or five messages that underlie the basic text of your book? Yeah, I, I think the, the 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 messages are all interlinked. But there's the fact of not giving up and having a determination to better yourself, and that. Just because you have a disability, it doesn't mean it's a, a, a death sentence. It's a, it can be a life sentence, but it doesn't mean that the life sentence is unpleasant. It can be even more rewarding than having an able-bodied child. Well, that's fabulous and inspiring just in its own statement. How would you, in looking back, 
would you say there were some challenging parts to writing this book? Uh, yes, there, there was challenging parts. Uh, some of it I didn't want to write about. My dad and I's relationship was very difficult growing up. And when I think back at some of that, some of those times I didn't really want to write any of it. But I knew that for parents reading the book, that they, they would like to see and learn from my dad and I's experiences. So that would be the hardest part of the book, writing about my dad. Stuart, thank you for sharing your insight into your challenges and triumphs. The book title again is 26, A Behind-the-Scenes Tour of a Life with Cerebral Palsy. Thank you for joining us today, Stuart. Where do we get copies of your book? You can get a copy of my book on Amazon. Uh, just search for Stuart Maloney and it will come up. So you can also find me on Twitter, which is, the handle is at Stuart Maloney 26. And the book page is also available on Facebook. Fabulous. Thank you for sharing your insight and for sharing your story with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. The book again is 26, a behind-the-scenes tour of life with cerebral palsy. Our author has been Stuart Maloney. Thanks again, Stuart. Thank you very much. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today I am honored to visit with author Penelope Bordelon to discuss a book she's written, Hope in the Valley, A Companion in Times of Bereavement. Welcome, Penelope. Greetings, and how are you today? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing time with me today. Your book deals with the very difficult task of uh, confronting bereavement and, and getting through those difficult times. Tell us your story. How did you come to write this book? What was the background and the reason you put this together? Well, my husband died 10 years ago, and after about six years, I suddenly felt moved to write a book, uh, which almost sort of wrote itself. 
because there were so many things that I just wanted to put on paper so that other people wouldn't perhaps fall into the same hole that I had done. It, it's a very different journey for everybody, but there were just one or two things that I've, well, quite a lot of things that I really wanted to share with people so that it might help them through their own bereavement. So that's why I started. And then it sort of just took over somehow. You've included in your book poetry. You've included uh, prose, obviously, and sharing your story. And one of the poems that stood out in my mind is one that was written by Gerard Manley Hopkins. In his uh, writing, I have desired to go where springs not fail, to fields where no sharp and sided hail and few lilies blow. And I've asked to be where no storms come, where green swell is in the heavens dumb and out of the swing of the sea. A desire to get away from the pain and the agony of bereavement. How did you cope with it? How did you do so? Well, you can't really get away from the pain. That's the honest truth. One simply has to face up to it, deal with it in the best way one can, and it gets better as it goes, um, one goes through the years. But I don't think it ever quite goes away, but one is much better able to cope with it once one's really faced up to the fact that nobody's going to do it for you. You've just got to go it alone. And there is no shortcut to grief, which is a sad truth, that you just have to go through every step of the way. It can be done. Yes. And I'm, I'm very lucky because I happen to have a very strong faith, and that helped me enormously. I was going to mention that. Uh, that's the uh, part that some people would call controversial, but many of us find comfort in our, our faith, our church communities. This is where your strength came from as well. Yes, very much so. I don't know how one, well, how I would have managed without it. But um, there are so many wonderful sayings, poems, books written about it, and and one just knows if one could put one's hand into the hand of God, he will help you walk along that path. And I'm not just saying that, I know it, I've experienced it, which is a terrific comfort. Beautifully said. And this book that you've written, who do you think this will appeal to, and why do you think it's important for them to read it? Anyone who's had a bereavement, uh, particularly of their husband or wife, obviously. But there are so many different kinds of bereavement. Um, terrible, of course, to lose a child, or someone by suicide, or um, an accident, sudden death, unexpected. There are so many um, terrible things. And, of course, one can even extend it to um, losing one's job, uh, losing, um, well, even a sort of far-off friend. I, it needn't necessarily be death only. Bereavement, I think, can um, cover many other losses. So I would like to think that anyone 
who have felt a deep loss in their life might just pick up something in the book. It'd be different for everybody. Um, you like that lovely poem of Gerald and Anthony Hopkins. Other people hopefully will think, oh, wow. And I just hope that it will speak to them. Well, Every one of them in a different way. Would you would you consider yourself a joyful person or cheerful? Yes. And what's the source of your joy? God. It's as simple as that. When I first had the scales taken from my eyes, which was about 20 years ago, I just had joy in my heart. It, it's not the same as happiness and I even had this wonderful joy when, it sounds extraordinary, when my husband died. I, I was uh, grief-stricken beyond belief because it was all very sudden. But I still had this amazing joy. And somehow joy can mingle with sorrow and grief and sadness. There's room... I think in everybody's heart for for the mixture, but I just could not do without my joy. And in bereavement, a very difficult time for all of us when we go through that. What's the most important thing that we should remember in the time of bereavement? I think, well, for me, it was remembering that God would he doesn't promise us an easy path, no nice bed of roses, but he gives us tough boots to walk that path. And I think every time I thought there was no end to the tunnel, I reminded myself that God was there with me. Sometimes the clouds are out and he's behind the clouds, but he's, he's always there. And that, that for me was the most important thing. And I never lost that, my faith, nor my joy. And that comes down to making a choice to serve the Lord. Yes, which I'd already done. So I was enormously helped by that. But I think most people, we all have a God-shaped hole within us. And I think if one doesn't fill it with God, it remains empty. And I think however many riches and good things that one can enjoy in this world, and people think making a lot of money is wonderful and all their problems will come to an end, but Somehow, if that God-shaped hole isn't filled by one's maker, then we never quite feel fulfilled or joyful or... Um, yes, I think fulfilled is the word I'm looking for. Well, how would you introduce this book to someone that may be going through bereavement or doesn't know about this book? How would you introduce this to them? I would say I'd love you to have this book and just pick it up as you feel um, inclined and 
you just dip into it uh, every day or whenever you want to. And I just hope that that it will help you. I, I must just tell you, I met a darling lady the other day. She's well over 90. hope I'm not going off the point, but um, her, she was given one of these books. And she said, my dear, I've been given so many books, and the only one that worked was yours. And I thought that was so charming, and she needn't have said it. And that's what I hope, just if, if they can dip into it and get strength from it. That is my greatest wish. And tell me about this book. How is it different or similar to other books in the marketplace? What makes it different? Any book that I've ever read about bereavement, um, particularly one that incorporates poems, uh, always a little bit what I call whimsical. Um, lovely poems, and I'm not, you know, I'm in, um, just in the other room and all that sort of thing. I don't, I don't hold with that. It's, it's, one has got to go through the grief. One can't step round it just by um, pretending that the person is only in the next door room. Death is death. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to see my husband again, which is just what um, keeps me going. I, I don't believe I'm going to. I know I'm going to, which is just wonderful. But I think other books, I don't want to sound um, as if I'm the only person that's <laughs> met it um, head on, but they are a little bit, um, well, whimsical is the only word I can think of. They're trying to paper over the cracks, if, if you can understand what I mean. I, I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to help the people through and out the other side without um, pretending that they weren't suffering. In fact, I've just now this afternoon talked to a very great friend whose husband's dying. And one can help people by not pretending that it isn't happening. And I think that's, I hope, what I have managed to do and people have said so, which gives me great pleasure because it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And I, I hope that by facing it head on, and of course being my own personal journey, um, it's, as I say, it's not the same for everybody, but I could only say what I felt and what went through and how I coped. Other people would have other ideas, obviously, but I think it is from what, um, from the feedback that I've had, I hope that it really does help people. Well, thank you for sharing that. Is there any uh, passage or event in the book that you'd like to read for us this morning? I'd love to read the prayer that uh, we had at our wedding, and, my, and we also had my, my husband's memorial service, and it goes, The God of heaven so join you now, that you may be glad of one another all your lives. 
And when he which hath joined you together shall separate you, may he again establish you with an, with an assurance that he hath but borrowed one of you for a time to make both more perfect in the resurrection through Jesus Christ our Lord, which I think is a lovely one. Beautiful prayer. Beautifully said. The book title again is Hope in the Valley, A Companion in Times of Bereavement, written by Penelope Bordelon. Thank you, Penelope, for joining us today all the way from Wales, and delighted that you've joined us on today's show. Where can we get copies of your book? Um, on my, I have a website, and they, you can order it online or through my email address. It, it's all there on the web, or through Author House. Thank you yes. again for sharing your story. And the correct spelling of our author's name is Penelope, P-E-N-E-L-O-P-E, and last name Bordelon, B-O-U-R-D-I-L-L-O-N. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Buffets and Breadlines, and the author is Dr. Kimon Valaskakis, and Kimon joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Kimon. Yeah, hello, how are you doing? Very good to have you with us. Uh, your book is real directed at how we're dealing with the world economies, uh, world production, and it seems very clear. Uh, you say that your first major conclusion is to challenge the conventional wisdom that there's not enough to go around and that we must tighten our belts, and then you have another major conclusion is that it is now it takes less and less human effort to pr produce all this affluence so we certainly have a, a lot of affluence but there's a lot of poor folks and uh, there's a small percentage of rich folks and that's what you're addressing uh, you've had quite a career and been a former uh, Canadian ambassador to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development and that's what brings you to Paris at this moment right that's right, yes, indeed. 
Basically, uh, the, uh, the the first argument, where I think you correctly pointed out uh, that my first challenge to conventional wisdom is that we are much richer than we think. Because if you look at public policy, if you look at uh, the sequester in the U.S., if you look at the Tea Party positions, if you look at the austerity in Europe, uh, it's all uh, based on the idea that we're uh, we're broke, that the world is broke, and that we are much poorer than we were previously. Now, this is not true. It's not true uh, either uh, in terms of anecdotes, because we have much more than we uh, had previously, but it's not even true uh, statistically, because uh, we are uh, we have a 75 trillion dollar world economy for only 7 billion people, which really comes up to about over $10,000 per person for every uh, man, woman, and child on the planet. Now, this has never been seen before in the history of the world. Before I was ambassador, I was teaching economic history at the University of Montreal, and we've never been that rich. So the idea that we have to uh, we have to have poor people because there's not enough to go around is uh, is completely false. Now this doesn't mean that we have to plunder the environment and start uh, using non-renewable resources like crazy. That I I'm against. But to claim that there's not enough to go around that we should cut down. Uh, does not make any sense if you look at the statistics, if you look at history. And that, uh, I think, is one of the major conclusions of the book. And if this conclusion is true, then most of the policies that we have in the U.S., in Canada, in Europe, are flawed and they cannot succeed. Um, now, the second point, which is also very important, is that this huge... Wealth, this buffet, so to speak, you know, the buffet is, is a symbol of affluence where you can eat as much as you want uh, with impunity. Well, this uh, huge wealth is now being produced with uh, a smaller proportion of the world's labor force. In fact, uh, the, uh, the statistics show that we're producing all this wealth with only two-thirds of the labor force because one-third is either um, unemployed or underemployed. Now, that the two conclusions put together mean that you have to, uh, we have to fundamentally rethink our policies, rethink our distribution policies, and also rethink our ways of including everybody in the huge buffet which is available if we manage it correctly. So what is, how do you see doing that? Because of uh, the history of man doesn't seem to he's done that very well uh, now that we have this dispropor uh, disproportionate number of people percentage of people uh, not needed in the workforce but still need have great needs uh, how do how do you manage that well, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm more optimistic about uh, mankind than a lot of people because having taught, uh, you know, economic history, I think we're, uh, we're much better off now than before. And whatever mistakes we make now uh, do not in any way compare with uh, the huge mistakes we've done in the past. Now, what we have to do is, first of all, we have to focus not just on production but on distribution. 
and the, the distribution of income is the weak point because right now 1% controls, 1% of the world's uh, population control maybe 30 or 40% of the world's income. Now this is a, a huge amount that has never been seen before. Obviously we have to redistribute and think of ways of sharing this wealth. Now how do we do it? Uh, uh, historically, what we've done uh, on the whole question of unemployment is we've worked less and we've earned more. Now, this could appear paradoxical and even surprising to a lot of people. But if you consider the work year, about 150 years ago, we were working 3,000 hours a year. Today, we're working 2,000 hours a year. Uh, this is because we have weekends, we have holidays, and things like that. At 2,000 hours a year in the OECD countries and the rich countries, we still have about 10 to 20% unemployment. If we had 3,000 hours a year, we would have 40% unemployment. But by the same token, if we had uh, 1,500 hours a year or 1,000 hours a year, then possibly we could have everybody employed. So this, again, goes against the grain and it goes against, a lot, against uh, a lot of conventional wisdom because a lot of people are saying work more and earn less. I say uh, we should earn more and subcontract, as we have been doing, much of the work to the machines and the computers. So from that point of view, the idea that uh, there's a whole chapter in the book called Wealth Without Work, the idea that we can produce wealth with less work is not necessarily bad news if we make sure that no one is left behind. But if, on the other hand, we are in a situation where some people work and earn money and other people are, are unemployed and on welfare in the U.S., in Canada, and in the rest of the world, then this is the recipe for revolution. This is a recipe for very, very bad things happening because the 99% is not going to take it lying down. And there's no reason not to include everybody because, as I say, we could include people because the world is much wealthier than we think it is. Now, I'm not saying that because the per capita income of the world could be $10,000 per person, everybody should, earn, should actually have exactly $10,000. I think there is an argument to be made for inequality. Some people should earn more. Some people should earn less. But there is no reason at all why people are starving, why people are in poverty, and why other people are buying Rolls Royces and expensive art and living in luxurious fashion. It's this cleavage, there's this chasm between the buffets and the breadlines, which we have to really work to eliminate. As we mentioned, this is a trilogy. Uh, book one, we're talking about buffets and bread lines. We'll talk about book two and book three a little later, but I want to talk about debt. Now, is debt good or bad? Uh, what about the private versus public debt? Uh, there's a lot of controversy. It's in the news all the time about debt. Well, exactly. And uh, I think uh, as you uh, as you know, I have a whole chapter on that, and it's, uh, it's uh, entitled Nobody Understands the Debt. And uh, the reason for this is because a lot of people confuse uh, uh, the whole issue of debt. I mean, if you 
borrow money to pay for your bills, to pay for your groceries. Well, this is very bad. If you borrow money to pay for old uh, debts, this is very bad. However, if you borrow money to invest, if you borrow money to create infrastructure, then uh, not only is that good, but the whole capitalist system has been built on the debt and on credit. Take away credit, which is actually the same thing as debt. Take away credit, and you don't have a system that can work. If the entrepreneur, the businessman, cannot borrow money, then um, there's no growth. So we have to make a distinction between uh, what the, the purpose of the debt is and who owns it and who uh, holds it. Because when people say, as you hear politicians say, we're indebted like crazy and uh, uh, the whole, uh, our future generations are going to be crippled by debt. I think this is uh, basically absurd because every time there's a debt, there must be a credit. So if uh, we are indebted, then someone must be obtaining credit for that. I mean, heck, we're not indebted to the Martians, we're indebted to ourselves as human beings. So it's also a question of who owes to whom. Now, if the U.S. owes money to the Chinese, then this is vulnerable. And this is uh, something that has to be fixed. Uh, I, I, one of the things I would argue for is that the U.S. should repatriate part of the debt, and I think there are ways and means of doing that. Why should the U.S. owe so much money to the Chinese? There's no reason, because there's a lot of capital in the U.S. So uh, coming back to your general problem, I think we have to make sure that we understand the purpose of the debt, who holds the debt, and who owes the debt. And we also have to make a distinction between public and private debt, because the uh, public debt can be dealt with in a different way from a private debt. Like if I owe money to you and I can't pay, uh, then I, I could go bankrupt. But when, if I, instead of paying, instead of actually paying you the, the debt, I can actually print money, uh, then I could pay my debts that way. And this is what uh, public debt can do. Now, you might say, isn't this inflationary? Well, in fact, it isn't. Because if we are uh, producing at capacity, then it would be inflationary. But if you look at the situation in, in the U.S., among other places, with 7% visible unemployed, but probably much more, to get the economy going would produce more income. And this income, if well distributed, could produce more prosperity and absorb the debt that way. So uh, the, uh, the clamor about public debt is, I think, uh, mis, uh, misguided. And in the case of the U.S., by the way, uh, the whole public deficit of the U.S. could be resolved very quickly by the imposition of some kind of a national sales tax. You know that you, you have national sales taxes in almost every other industrial countries in the world. The U.S. doesn't have one. Uh, with a 6 or 7% national sales tax, the deficit and the public debt could disappear in, matter, in a matter of years. So uh, the, the upshot of the whole thing is that there's a lot of uh, mistakes and there's a lot of uh, confusion which leads to mismanagement. And uh, this is what the book is uh, fighting against. And the book is not written in a traditional 
format. It's written as a simulated seminar where eminent people, fictitious eminent people, meet in the island of Corfu in Greece and decide to change the world in three weeks. Now, the first week is the world as we know it now, and, it's the, and the result of that is book one, which you have in man, in hand, buffets and breadlines. Book two is a world as we would like it to be, which is yet to be written. And book three is, okay, here we are. Here's where we'd like, it to, we'd like to go. How the heck do we go from here to there? And as a former ambassador of the OECD and as a person who, only, who not only wants to think but act, that third book is very important because it will show that uh, what we're talking about is not just pie in the sky. It's actually doable. We just have about a minute left, uh, Kimon. Uh, why do you call this the Athena Trilogy? Well, initially I was going to call it the Corfu Trilogy, but then I found out that someone else had uh, that title that I couldn't have it. And I was looking at Greek mythology, and I was looking at what is the uh, Greek mythology figure uh, that represents uh, wisdom. And it's supposed to be the goddess Athena. So I said, well, why not call it the Athena Trilogy? with uh, book one uh, taking place in Corfu and book two and three maybe taking place somewhere else and just jazz it up a little bit that way. Well, thank you so much, Kimon, for being with us on Author Talk. Uh, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book can be obtained through Author House or it could be obtained through Amazon.com. Deface and Deadlines, subtitle, Is the World Really Broke or just grossly mismanaged. And you know my answer to that one. We do, and we appreciate you sharing your insights, and uh, we look forward to book two and book three. So again, thank you for being with us on Author Talk. Okay, thank you. Take care.